If you're enjoying Founding Fufu, every yam and cassava counts. Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Let's work together in building a creative digital audio platform that shares experiences across the globe. Click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Pounding Fufu, the podcast. I'm Danica Samuel, your host, creator, and storyteller. I'm a firm believer that everything in life happens for a reason, and sometimes that reason isn't for you, but for another person. Hey everyone, I have a few updates before I start this chapter. First, I am so grateful for all your support of Pounding Fufu. It's been such a pleasure seeing people like my grade six teacher, Mr. Langevin, receive his flowers. All because you guys are interacting, replying, responding, sharing. It means a lot. When I started pounding Fufu, the goal was never to focus on my stories, but I knew I had to start somewhere. Pounding Fufu is about your stories and experiences, no matter where you are in the world. So I am really excited that it's branching out to everyone now. As a life update, I'm based in Montreal, Quebec. It's the French side of Canada. Mon français c'est pieux, mais je déménage de Toronto à Montreal parce que je veux pratiquer le français. Duolingo is my accountability partner. For this episode, there might be a lot of construction noise in the background. Please bear with me. I'm so sorry. It's just me and I don't have a production studio. But in time, we'll get there. If you're based in Montreal or wherever you are in the world, I really want you to connect with me and share your stories. Please reach out to me at contact at danicasamuel.com. Now, on to chapter six. Fiddleheads on home and native land. I worked on a sailboat for a couple of summers and went up and down the coast of BC. And, you know, the entire time I was on these trips, I never saw any black folks. I wondered many times, was I the first black person that had ever gotten to the spot? This is Natasha Sawyer. She's a black Canadian chef and forager currently based in British Columbia. I've only met her virtually after I tweeted that I was looking for forages of the African diaspora in Canada. A friend of hers sent my tweet her way and that's how we got connected. Last year, I wrote a story for the Toronto Star exploring some of the recipes and food traditions of Canada's first black settlers. It opened my eyes to a lot of ways our ancestors worked the land and created recipes that still exist to this day. I've gone down quite the rabbit hole since then, very eager to uncover more black Canadian foragers and if anyone is keeping those traditions alive today. I don't have a production, research, or fact-checking team for Pounding Fufu, it's just me. So I did my best to look up black Canadian foraging communities online, through Facebook, Instagram, and the whole nine yards. I may have missed something, but there's a lot of groups that exist, there's just none that I found dedicated to black people. I did find a lot of farmers from the African diaspora, but no foragers specifically until I got a DM from Natasha. I could tell she was incredibly passionate about foraging. She sent me a bunch of paragraphs in my DMs and she started talking about her lifelong journey from foraging. And even looking from her Instagram, you can see some of the most delicious, scrumptious looking recipes. 
all gathered from the places and spaces she's been. So I called her. Hello? Hello. Hey, Natasha, how are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? We spoke on the phone one weekend where she told me that she feels like she's history in the making. Being one of the first black persons to step foot on certain terrain across Canada that's far and wide and out of touch of central places of habitat. This really stuck out to me and it actually gave me the shivers because with all that is undocumented about the black Canadian experiences, how could she ever be sure? How could we ever be sure? So I called her again and we really got to talking. I worked for a company called Outer Shores Expeditions and the company is a ecotourism company. So I know that's a lot. Out here in BC, a lot of boat tours are fishing tours. This was not that. So this was ecotourism, whale watching, that sort of thing. I was a chef on that boat for two summers. So the summer of 2016 and 2017, uh, both of which I was on the water anywhere between, I think, 40 days or so in the summer of 2016, and then about 80 days in the summer of 2017, not consecutive days. These were all uh, shorter trips. We would leave from port with six guests, the captain, the first mate, the cook, <laughs> me, and uh, some kind of specialist. For example, one of our trips I remember best was with a woman named Rosie Child, who is uh, a bear expert. And so that week I just learned a lot about bears that I never knew before. Uh, but every single trip there was some kind of specialist on board, sometimes someone who was more into uh, marine life, some folks who are you know, a geologist type person once, uh, folks that were in, uh, anthropologists, that kind of thing. So all of that really added to the entire experience. During the spring and the fall, most of our trips were in the Pacific Rim National Park. We stayed a little bit closer to shore since the weather can get quite rough out in the ocean. And Pacific Rim National Park has lots of small islands that you can kind of hopscotch between when you're on a boat and you're trying to stay out of rough weather. In the summer, however, we would spend a lot of time just on the BC coast, uh, going up and down, I was going to say driving, <laughs> but I meant sailing, up and down uh, the west coast of Canada from, our starting point was always Bella Bella, and our ending point, the years I was on the boat anyway, was in Kitimat, and we would take seven days to travel that distance. Obviously, you can go a lot faster if you don't stop, but the whole point of being on that boat was to stop for everything interesting. And that could be whales, that could be bears on shore, that could be some uh, cultural site um, where Indigenous folks had lived or were still living. Uh, yeah, so we stopped a lot. <laughs> and uh, That was, yeah, pretty much pretty amazing. And most of the trips that I remember actually are those ones in the Great Bear uh, Rainforest traveling from Bella Bella uh, to Kitabat. The whole time Natasha was talking about her time in a passing cloud, I was drooling at her interaction with nature across Canada. I mean, Canada is one of the largest countries in the world, I believe landmass-wise. And most people from major cities like Toronto or Montreal will tell you that they want to do a better job of exploring the country's terrain. Getting to touch the Pacific Ocean is pretty cool. So there's a lot about like edible seaweeds, other sea plants like sea asparagus, for example, sea arugula, which is woo, super spicy. <laughs> you know, things on the shore that you can eat, like limpet. When I googled Bella Bella, yeah. also known as Waglisla, 
I imagine Natasha breathing in the fresh air of the passing cloud boat, surrounded by mountainous views and soft ripples from creatures peeking through the coastal waters. I pictured what it must feel like to sight a whale in the distance or step out on the boat onto foreign islands that are home to all sorts of wildlife. She even told me that she encountered a spirit bear. For those of you who don't know, spirit bears, named by the indigenous people, are one of the rarest mammals on earth. They are only found in the Great Bear Rainforest of BC. Only one in 10 black bears are pale, and to produce pale cubs, both parents must carry that gene. And they play a very important part of the coastal ecosystem. Foraging, by definition, is the act of a person or animal in search for food and provisions. It's done by hunting, fishing, or the gathering of plant matter. But, of course, with every definition, there are layers of experiences and circumstances that add to its meaning. When I think about foraging from a class perspective, I see how upper echelon communities or environments gravitate to the uniqueness of rare source foods on their plates. When I felt bougie, I would drive out to the countryside in Ontario and enjoy a fine dining experience at Restaurant Pearl Morissette. Every plate was a serving of sourced ingredients from local farms, from sorrel sorbets to clafouti, wild trout, and specialized teas. It was fascinating how the foragers and chefs worked together to create scrumptious and visually appealing meals. During my time traveling abroad, specifically across Africa, foraging to plate experiences are still upheld in luxury environments, but the thing is, it's that it's really just a part of their everyday. An evening in a crowd with a plate of banku and fish was literally fetched that same afternoon and cooked by aunties on the side of the street of Asafoa Chetapong Road. I'm looking for the right Anthony Bourdain way to tell you that it's quite all the same, but different. But one aspect that sticks out to me about foraging is the idea of exploring and making something from what is nothing, or otherwise passed on the street, taken for granted, like the dandelions. How I ended up writing about African Canadian recipes for the Toronto Star was watching a Netflix documentary series, High on the Hog. I decided to investigate what Black Canadian ancestors created with their recipes and learned that at one point, a lobster sandwich meant you were poor. I remember meeting up with my friend and artist Oluse. I went to his exhibition, Plowing Liberty, at the Museum of Contemporary Arts in Toronto. And that day, he told me another special story about Black loyalists that first settled in Canada. Miss um, Myrna, was, she passed away two years ago. Um, but she told me this story about how her ancestors, who were Jamaican Maroons and Black Lewis soldiers from the States, um, were essentially put on these um, parcels of land by the British Crown. And the land was so poor that they couldn't, um, it was in almost impossible to like farm anything, right? And the idea was that, you know, they would probably just die off. She was telling me about how her ancestors essentially dug their own graves because they spent so much time like toiling the earth trying to turn it around, trying to like grow stuff so they could feed their families and um, also like sell things to make money, right? Um, so that really resonated with me. And 
you know, you can read all this information online, but to hear someone pass that knowledge down to me, and this is also based on what she had been told, mm -hmm. um, there's something powerful about oral history that I think we often take for granted. Um, but I'm interested in like giving power to black oral histories. Um, a lot of African countries or tribes didn't actually... There's that word again, history. After re-listening to that conversation of Oluse, I found that it was a divine synchronicity that he mentioned oral history. And Natasha is contemplating if she's making history. Foraging is a part of so many cultures, but the history of how it's played out throughout the African diaspora really, really moves me. It's what inspired Natasha too. Growing up between the Bahamas and Toronto, foraging was always around her, embedded in her way of living. From her first easy-bake oven, I remember those. Living near a ravine, being a part of Girl Guides, and the continued interest in cooking what she saw growing up around her, in her family homes. She always had a deep, inquisitive mind when it came to food. It's like, well, we didn't always, even as a kid, it was like, well, we didn't always live like this. We didn't always go to the store and buy the things we ate. And, you know, my mom, because she's 80 years old now, and her childhood, too, was a lot different. Um, would always tell me about going out fishing with her brothers and sisters, you know, tromping in the bush looking for coconuts and mangoes and whatever else. Uh, she grew up in the Bahamas and always loved those stories. And so when we got to do those things too, I just always thought it was super cool. You know, let's um, go in the bush and look for pigeon plums or, you know, sea grapes or whatever happened to be uh, in season at the time when we lived in the Bahamas. Like it's, it's definitely been food itself has been a lifelong obsession and foraging is just another part of that. Was there a particular moment that sparked your foraging journey? Like something that really flicked the light bulb on into this path? When, when I was probably about six or seven years old, um, I at the time was living uh, with my mother in the Bahamas. Uh, we had returned there when I was five years old and we stayed there for about five and a half years. So I was uh, living in the Bahamas between ages of five and just about ten and a half. And we picked this creeping vine. It was kind of creeping up a tree. And I remember my mother saying to me, this is medicine. Like, this, we're going to make this into tea. It's going to be medicine. And thinking, well, medicine doesn't come from trees. Medicine comes in a bottle at the store, at the drugstore. And how is this going to be medicine? And she we took it home, <laughs> she brewed it into tea, it tasted terrible, and she guaranteed me it was going to help me to feel better. And I don't remember if it did or not, <laughs> but I do remember this really bitter flavor of this, which I learned later was a, a, a vine called Saracee. It grows all over the Caribbean, actually, and people use it for, like, respiratory things. So, like, if you have a cold or the flu, they will brew this very bitter tea and uh, make their kids drink it because it's good for you. But that's the first time, yeah, up until then, I was a kid from the city, basically, who everything comes from the store. Everything comes in a bottle or a box or a can or whatever, not outside. And so that was kind of a wake-up call for me. That would have been my earliest memory of picking something that wasn't recognizable, uh, but it wasn't being grown on purpose. It just grew there. So we came back to Canada when I was, uh, oh, 10 and a half or so 
And I didn't remember living here as a kid. So we had left for the Bahamas when I was five. And, you know, so the six years or so that we spent in the Bahamas was really formative for me. But coming back here, I didn't remember living here as a young kid, really. And so for me, it was a lot of, a lot of culture shock, a lot of where the heck am I? And going from a smaller urban place in Nassau, where we were living, to Toronto. And one of the ways I tried to center myself was by getting to know the land around me. So there were, there were a few things that kind of came together to um, reacquaint me with Canada. So one was actually going to Girl Guides. A plant identification was actually part of one of our badges at some point, I mm -hmm. believe. Natasha told me a lot about her discoveries of Girl Guides. And one that was really cool was dandelions. I mean, who would have thought? Personally, for me, dandelions are very irritating. They're weeds, you see them everywhere, and I just remember all my summer camp days where kids would blow the puffballs and it would tickle my nose or even poke my eyeballs. Probably was about 13 or so at the time. Maybe younger, I can't remember now. But uh, anyway, yeah, just, just dandelions. And the wow. first thing that I actually identified for myself, which no one told me about, was watercress. I had gotten a book. Mm -hmm. I was walking down, again, by Don River, which is a filthy river, by the way. So I picked a bunch of it, basically stuck it in my pocket, uh, came home, you know, ran back to the book, which I had gotten from the library. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it was growing in the right environment. Mm -hmm. It had the right shaped leaves. Uh, you know, all of the identifiers were there. And I was so proud of myself. Like, When I talk to Natasha about where she's at with foraging now, her journey, and also circling back to how we first connected, which was uncovering black foragers in Canada, I could hear the excitement in her voice as she tells me about all the various mushrooms, nuts, arugula, and so much wildlife that she brought to her kitchen and the plates of others. Natasha is the only black forager I found, and she's the only one that she knows in Canada. To me, that's incredibly disappointing. Given that Black Loyalists, Jamaican Maroons, and so many more Africans across the diaspora have set foot on Canada's home and native land, it got me thinking that I may have to start a larger investigation to find who's out there, who's foraging in Canada. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's a general problem with representation of people of color in the outdoors at all. The picture of foraging, I think when people think about it, is of these scruffy white dudes tromping through the forest looking for mushrooms. A little bit weird, because they're all a little bit weird, in a good way. Um, some of them are quite, you know, a lot of people are loners you know, that do this sort of work. But they're certainly not thinking of sort of middle-aged black women from the city doing the same thing. And it's not that people have treated me not in a negative way, but certainly there's been surprise. And that surprise has caused such weird interactions in environments that she always felt comfortable in, especially when she's the only black forager advising and cooking in a restaurant. Natasha told me that she found other groups for black people where they could dabble into outdoor activities like mountain bike riding, skiing, hiking, but hasn't found one specific to foraging. Now, I know what you're thinking. Is Natasha going to start her own group of black foragers in Canada? Yes, this makes for an ideal wrap-up to the story. And I also thought about asking her that question too. 
But after much thought, I came to the conclusion that I don't need to ask her this. Black people and black women should be allowed to be happy and comfortable paving the way without being some sort of catalyst to a social construct movement. I hope you get what I'm saying. Regardless of whether Natasha creates a group for foragers or not, her work, her talent, and her very existence is that of a trailblazer. And she's already an inspiration to anyone who could see her skin color and see her work and hear her passion. I asked her what she'd be cooking up next in life or in the kitchen. And she told me about her favorite Hispanic pita recipe she's made with a patch of chickweed or dandelion greens. And that she's in the beginning stages of writing a book. In October of last year, I just finished my first draft of a manuscript where I married together two of my best loves. One is foraging and one is science fiction. The premise of the book is that the world has sort of come to an end, not an actual end, but civilization has crumbled in some way. But the person in the book wants to open a restaurant. How do you do that after everything has fallen apart? And I just started looking around at plants I knew from foraging and anywhere else, anything else I've ever grown, and started writing recipes that don't depend on, there's no dairy, there's no eggs, there's no wheat. Some things won't ever change. You know, barring climactic disaster, <laughs> we should always be able to make living from the land, from the sea, from the sky. This is where things all started. And as far as we like to distance ourselves from where our food comes from a lot of ways, you can't. You can't get away from that. If you have no land, if you have no sea, you have no food. And let's always just remember that, yes, even if we're making something science in the future, a lot of times we have to go back to our past to find out how it was done. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pounding Foo-Foo. I look forward to you joining me in figuring out this thing called life. You can listen via Spotify and Apple Podcasts or dive into the digital experience at poundingfoofoo.com. A special thanks to Jason Amos, aka John Dre, for the beat at the beginning of this podcast and the one you're jamming to right now. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, life doesn't get better. You do.